Thanks for joining us. I'm Jody Hoosentrude. Watch News Channel 3 Daybreak. The time is 6 o'clock. It was only 12 steps from the door of her apartment building to her red Mazda Miata. In the few seconds it took for Jody Hoosentrude to cross the parking lot, she was grabbed. She's never been found. Who abducted the popular morning news anchor? The only trace of her left behind were the things that spilled out of her bag during the attack. Her red high heels scattered on the concrete, earrings, a hairdryer and hairspray, her car key, bent now, a mysterious palm print that's never been identified, and drag marks leading away from her car into a mystery that's never been solved. Welcome to True Crime Recaps. I'm Amy, and this is one of those stories that's hard to shake. It's been 26 years since Jody Hoosentrout went missing in small town Mason City, Iowa. And in that time, there have been no official suspects, no real progress, and no trace of her has ever been found. In 1995, when she was taken, it was the biggest case in Iowa history. It still is. Today, I want to walk you through it and explore some of the more plausible theories, including a bizarre connection between Jody and the murder of another woman two hours away and 16 years earlier. Thousands of viewers looked forward to seeing Jody's friendly face on their televisions every day, smiling behind the anchor desk at 6 a.m. and noon on KIMT, the Mason City CBS station. Before she disappeared on June 27th, 1995, she was on her way to becoming a local celebrity. But that Tuesday started off a little differently. She should have been walking into the newsroom by 3 a.m. Her show Daybreak went on the air at 6, but that morning she overslept. At 4 a.m., her producer, Amy Coons, gave her a wake-up call. She didn't know it then, but she would be the last known person to hear Jody's voice. According to an interview she did with Scott Fuller on the Find Jody podcast, it wasn't normal for Jody to sleep in, but it wasn't unusual either. And on that morning, she sounded groggy when she picked up and you know, panicky about being late. Amy was annoyed, but not concerned. A wake-up call from her usually got Jody to jump out of bed, shower, throw her things in a bag to get ready at the studio. And she should have been behind the wheel of her car by at least 4.20 a.m. and in the newsroom by 4.30. Her apartment was only about a mile away. But nothing was routine about that Tuesday morning in June, 1995. An hour went by, there was no sign of Jody. Amy gave her another call, but Jody didn't pick up. But you know what they say, the show must go on. Amy was frantically trying to get Daybreak ready to go by 6 a.m. showtime. Over the years, people have asked why she didn't stop and take the time to call the police when her coworker didn't show up. And yes, she regrets that now. But hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, if your office mate skips work, do you automatically reach for the phone to call for help? Well, I mean... Yeah, now you might, but normally you'd be focused on doing your job. And with every minute that ticked by, Amy expected to see Jody running into the newsroom with an excuse. But when her anchor chair was still empty at 6 a.m. and Jody was nowhere to be seen, Amy had to fill in. By the time the show was over, it was clear something was very, very wrong. Viewers in Mason City found out Jody was missing from the noon broadcast. Amy was the one to break the news to them on air. At 7.15 a.m., five hours before the public found out what was going on, the police had finally been called. So as surreal as it was for them to have to make that call, it wouldn't be the only bizarre phone call in the newsroom that day. Five minutes later, 
Amy got a strange call of her own. So around 7.20 a.m., a man phoned to ask about Jody. He said his name was John. He wanted to know where she was. Was she sick? Why wasn't she anchoring the news that day? And in Amy's podcast interview, she remembered thinking that John must have been John Van Sice, Jody's friend. All right. He's someone you're going to hear more about. But first, we're not there yet. Let's go to the investigation going on in the parking lot of the key apartments. So had someone been lying in wait for her? The day before she disappeared, Jody told friends that she'd been getting obscene phone calls. She was planning to change her number. She wrote about a possible stalker in a letter to a friend in Missouri. And get this, it was delivered on the same day Jody vanished. At 4 a.m., the parking lot was dark. Most of the buildings, you know, 90 or so or tenants were fast asleep. Only two or three people reported hearing a short, sharp scream around 4.15 a.m. No one checked it out. No one called 911. One investigator believes somebody was there on that morning with the intention of at least talking to her or confronting her about something, if not planning an abduction. The attack didn't come out of the blue. She'd been looking over her shoulder for months before that day. In October 1994, she talked about a black truck trailing her while she was jogging. Obviously, leaving for work alone at 3 a.m. made her vulnerable. So one morning, she thought she was even followed. It made her so nervous, she talked to the police about it, and they escorted her to the studio a few times after that. And they thought that was the end of it. No further problems. But they didn't know the half of it. She was even taking self-defense classes. And it looked like she tried to fight back. Some kind of struggle happened in the parking lot of her apartment building. Her car keys were on the ground, bent, so it looked like she'd had them in the door when she was taken. Her red high heels, her blow dryer, hairspray, earrings, they were all strewn across the parking lot. And leading away from her car were what looked like drag marks on the pavement. A palm print on the door has also never been identified, and police still refuse to confirm or deny what some people close to the case have said, that the car's convertible top was dented and Jody's blood was on the side mirror. Here's what wasn't found on the scene. Her purse and briefcase were missing, including the two notebooks she always carried with her, and one of them had addresses and contact numbers in it. So was there some kind of clue hidden in those notebooks? Some reason her kidnapper couldn't leave them behind? Inside her apartment, things were a little off there too. Detectives found a few strange stuff out of place. So Jody lived alone, but the toilet seat was up. You know, the way a man would leave it. And they also noticed beer cans in the sink. 16-ounce cans of a brand she didn't drink, but her friend John did. And he was the last person to see her the night before. So let me tell you more about John Fansize. At the time, he was a corn seed salesman from Newton, Iowa. He was married with two kids, but divorced in 1994. That's when he moved two hours south into the key apartments in Mason City. Jody was his neighbor. She was 22 years younger than him. To the police and reporters, he said she was like a daughter, but no father should ever be as obsessed with his daughter as this guy was with Jody. He'll listen to what he said about her right after she was taken. I even named my goat after her because just, just because she's Jody and, and she's, she's been such a big part of my life here lately and, and she just makes me feel so good. Uh-huh. 
And then he told CBS, if you ever went in her apartment and you saw men's clothes, they're mine. If I had a shirt she liked, you know I'd wear it for a while and then I'd give it to her. I just loved watching her have fun. I tried to watch over her. I tried to check on her once in a while. Not all the time, just once in a while. See how she's getting along. Uh Uh-huh. Her friends say John was checking on her all the time, and his interest was far from fatherly and definitely not returned. She just wanted to be friends. Well, the night before she was taken, she was at his house watching home videos of the party he threw to celebrate her 27th birthday a few weeks earlier. Earlier that day, she played in the Chamber of Commerce golf tournament. It was raining hard, so she had to go home and change clothes before she came back for the awards banquet. She left that dinner around 8 and stopped by John's house. She got home around 9.30 and called her friend in Missouri, the same friend that got that letter from her the next day saying she was being stalked. But on the phone the night before, she didn't mention anything about it. She just sounded happy, just like she always did. Jody was originally from Long Prairie, Minnesota. She grew up idolizing Kathy Gifford and Paula Zahn. She wanted a career in the news business just like them. She earned her bachelor's in mass communications at St. Cloud State University, and she did a short stint as a flight attendant before she landed her first job in TV. She was an intern and a station in Cedar Rapids, and it only took her a year of fetching coffee before she landed the anchor position at KIMT in Mason City. Two years later, she was taken. Now, based on her upbeat diary entries, she was having the time of her life. She started journaling after watching a Tony Robbins talk about it as like a key to success, which, you know, key to success, that sounded good to her. And she wanted to move up to a bigger news market. And at the time she disappeared, she was actively sending out audition tapes all over the country. And like, You know, any other girl writing in her diary. She talked about dating, trying to find the one, and her social life. Her last few entries mentioned John Van Size. Two nights before her abduction, she talked about a trip she'd just taken to Iowa City with a girlfriend. They stayed at John's son's house, and they went water skiing on John's boat. The boat he named after her. She wrote, oh, we had fun. It was wild partying and water skiing. She also wrote about the birthday party he threw her. And yeah, it sounded like some wild fun. Dancing on tables, a huge keg, a massive cake. There was no mention of being scared of him. But her sister said she told her mother she thought he wanted something more than friendship. You know, he was starting to make her uncomfortable. And there's something else you need to know about that journal. The only reason we know anything about what she wrote is because it ended up in the hands of a Globe Gazette reporter in 2008, 13 years after Jody vanished. It was sent anonymously, but it didn't stay a secret for long. The person who sent it to the paper was the wife of the former police chief. So why would she send it? Was there some clue she wanted the public to know? Well, whatever her reasons were, she never said. But let's get back to John Van Size for a minute. Not only was he allegedly making Jody uncomfortable, but her producer, Amy Coons, told the Fine Jody podcast that she was scared of him. So get a load of this. Two weeks after Jody was taken, Amy was at a laundromat in town when John walked in with two big bags of washing up. Now, you'd think that that would be a moment for the two of them to maybe compare notes about their mutual friend's disappearance, but John wasn't looking for a chat. If looks could kill, Amy would have been dead on the floor. She grabbed her things and left, completely freaked out. 
So did he scare her on purpose? And if so, why? I mean, he wasn't an official suspect. But two days after it happened, a reporter from the Globe Gazette had a strange encounter with him. John was in the audience of a police press conference about Jody's disappearance when he struck up a conversation with this reporter. It was important for him to share that he'd just passed a lie detector test with, quote, flying colors. And as if that wasn't bizarre enough, this is what John told a reporter two days after Jody disappeared. He said he and some friends were going to have a kager that night to celebrate his passing the polygraph. Psycho talk. And way too early to be celebrating. He's the one person police have never officially cleared. Uh, Of course, he's always maintained his innocence, but the police dug up his basement in 2004. They didn't find anything, but if he was being honest on that polygraph, why did the cops issue a search warrant for two of his cars in 2017? Yeah, they grabbed the GPS data off his 1999 Honda Civic and his 2013 GMC. We don't know why they got the warrant because it's still sealed since this remains an active investigation, but the police don't search your car because they think you're innocent. Am I right? We need to talk about the white van in the parking lot when Jody was taken. Could the driver be the one who grabbed her? The tip on the van was called in by a guy who lived nearby, and he drove down Jody's street every day on his way to work. The police ran with that tip, and they told the public to be on the lookout for a mid-80s white Ford Econoline van. You know the kind of, you know, a kidnapping van. No windows, no distinguishing marks. The kind we all know we should run from if it starts trailing us. In 1995, that witness was the only person to see the van. In 2019, he gave a few more details about what he saw to the Fine Jody podcast. He said he noticed the van because the parking lights were on and he thought it might be a cop car. He drove past it around 3.50 a.m., but when he took a closer look, he saw that he was mistaken. He still insists that the van he saw was a white Ford Econoline just sitting in the parking lot. He couldn't tell if the engine was running and he couldn't make out the driver or see if anyone was in the driver's seat. At the time, he was the only person to say they saw it. But in 2020, another woman contacted the Fine Jody podcast claiming that she saw a similar looking van on the street outside the key apartment complex. Here's what she said, quote, I remember 4, 4.30 a.m. hearing a car door. I'd never heard it before. The street was really, really quiet. I saw what looked to be a white or a light gray van on the street, not in the parking lot, but on the street. I really didn't think too much about it. I didn't see any people. As I was falling back asleep, I heard another door close. When I woke up two hours later, the van was gone. Did she Did she not hear the short, sharp scream right after that? Anyhow, John drove a van, but it was blue, not white. And honestly, that van might not have had anything to do with Jody at all. Police know that it didn't belong to anyone living in the apartment building, but it might have been a delivery van dropping off papers. It, it might not even have been there at all. But as long as we're talking about suspicious cars and people, you need to hear what another witness said. Okay, again, according to the Fine Jody podcast, one of Jody's neighbors remembered complaining to the manager about a creepy guy who drove a gray or greenish car and would hang around the campground next to the key apartments. How creepy is it to have a campground next to your apartment building? Feels It feels creepy. 
Another woman who was jogging by Jody's apartment complex that morning remembers a car fitting that description leaving the parking lot fast around 4.30 a.m. And that creepy guy the neighbor complained about was never seen again after that morning. So who was driving that car? Was this white van thing just a red herring? Could that car be the vehicle that took Jody? And that brings us to Tony Jackson, a convicted sex predator currently doing life in Minnesota for a series of brutal rapes. When Jody disappeared, Tony was living five minutes away and just two blocks from the KIMT news station. Are, yeah, are your spidey senses tingling? Just wait. Tony's MO was to stalk his victims, sometimes for months, and he came prepared. His victims were duct taped, gagged, threatened at gunpoint, and raped. And the woman he targeted, even a former girlfriend of his, looked remarkably similar to Jody. According to his former prison pal, Tony is the guy who took Jody. Now, here's what he told WCCO investigative reporter Caroline Lowe three years after she was taken. I was looking out of the day room window and uh, he came up to me. That's when we started talking again and then he just brought it up. He says, I abducted a, a anchor woman and killed her. He said, just like that. All right, I know what you're thinking. Big deal. Jody's abduction was a high profile case and he probably just made it up. But WCCO dug up some pretty compelling circumstantial evidence that might make you think twice. So get this. One day before she was taken, Tony wrote a bad check for $7,000 to buy a grayish, greenish, sort of bluish, but, you know, in that color family car. The check bounced and he returned the car less than a week later. But in that time, he managed to rack up over 500 miles. So where did he go? That prison pal thinks the answer to that question can be found in a rhyme Tony made up. So take a listen. She's a stiffen around tiffin and pilots of silage in a bylaw low below off a highway by a grave road. Mm-hmm. WCCO decided to take that rhyme seriously and dig a little deeper into the area around Tiffin, Iowa, about two and a half hours south of Mason City. So following the lyrics Tony made up, they did find an abandoned silo near a cemetery, exactly as he stated in that rhyme. Now, the news station alerted the police, and on their own dime, they hired three of the country's best cadaver dogs to check it out. Two of the dogs alerted on pieces of stained wood inside the silo. It looked like evidence of human blood, but DNA tests led nowhere. Interestingly, though, they also alerted on a piece of red fabric found near the silo. So could that have been torn from the dress Jody might have been wearing that morning? But again, that discovery hit a wall, and the following year, the Mason City Police officially cleared Tony. But many people close to this, including a retired detective, say Tony deserves a second look. Not only did his lyrics point to a real location, but phone records that WCCO dug up put Tony in the area right around that time. And there are 11 hours before and after Jody went missing where Tony can't be accounted for. He, Of course, he claims he had nothing to do with her abduction and he didn't even know the woman. But people who knew him say that was a lie. In college, before he lost his basketball scholarship for violent behavior, he wanted to be a TV journalist, just like Jody. And one man claims he was with him when Tony followed her to a local bar to get a chance to talk to her about the news business, or so this guy claimed. But Tony wasn't the only sexual deviant in the area that police took a hard look at. 
Another person of interest was a predator named Thomas Croscadden. He was a sex offender with 25 years of arrests and convictions for everything from flashing people and soliciting sex workers to peeping in windows and rape. His own daughter said he watched Jody a lot on TV with like a lot of interest, and he traveled to Mason City often. He drove a light-colored van, which he turned into a sort of like rape kit on wheels, Pretty clear he was certainly the kind of guy who would have had no problem grabbing her, and he had the means with the van, but in 2004, the police said they tried and failed to match his palm print to the one they found on Jody's car. So they cleared him. Of course, that's assuming that that palm print came from her attacker. I mean, have you ever touched a car? I have. Are we suspects in, like, a disappearance? Many, many people think Thomas also needs more looking into. But before we get off the topic of mysterious cars and white vans, we have to take a hard look at Jody's car, her red convertible Mazda Miata. It was brand new. She just got it a few weeks before she disappeared. As an up-and-coming news anchor in a small market like Mason City, she wasn't making much money. Amy Coons told the Fine Jody podcast that she herself made something in the neighborhood of like $13,000 a year. And Jody was probably bringing in like, you know, a little more than that, but not much more. Not, you know, Mazda Miata convertible money, which is why lately some private investigators have been trying to figure out how she came to get that car. Was it a gift? Maybe from John Van Sice, an older man with a creepy affection for her and a lot of money who was trying to buy her love? Or did she come into some money to buy the car? That leads us to one of the more prevalent theories around her disappearance. A possible connection between her work on the news and a local drug ring that left five people dead. So the kingpin was Dustin Honkin. Like, the nerdiest-looking drug dealer you have ever seen. He was executed on death row for the murders in 2020, but before he died, he and his girlfriend slash accomplice always said that they had nothing to do with Jody's disappearance, and her friends and family don't think that there's anything to that theory either. The thing is, Jody wasn't that kind of reporter, and she wasn't that kind of a girl. She wasn't interested in investigating hard news, she wasn't doing or dealing drugs, and she was mainly on the anchor desk, not even necessarily out in the field chasing down leads. But the idea that she came into some cash as a result of an association with Dustin has been a hard theory for the internet to shake over the years. As recently as July 2021, one longtime private investigator on the case, a guy named Steve Ridge, told KAAL News that he's close to cracking it, and it all has to do with previously unknown details about that Mazda Miata. Beyond that, he didn't say, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if anything develops, or if it's just another dead end in a case full of more questions than answers. And here's another questionable coincidence for you to consider. Three months before she went missing, tragedy struck a close friend of hers, a guy named Billy Pruin. Now, this is strange. On April 2nd, 1995, Billy and his girlfriend got engaged. The next day, or, you know, one or two days later, he got a new tractor he was very excited about. But then all of a sudden, he kind of dropped off the face of the earth. He stopped communicating with anyone. No one could reach him. By April 5th, with no sign of him, a friend was so worried, he went out to Billy's farm, and he found the front door open with the house keys still in the lock. Billy was dead inside, shot in the chest. Nothing seemed to be missing. 
and, you know, yada, yada, yada. The police eventually called it a suicide. But no one who knew him believed that. I want to know what you think about the possibility of that link to Jody's disappearance. According to an interview on the Find Jody podcast, one friend of hers allegedly saw John Van Sys fighting with Billy about his relationship with Jody, like months earlier before he was murdered. Something about dancing too close to her or, you know, some other something that might have gotten him jealous. And if it's true, and again, ah, this is based on someone's memory of a situation, allegedly, blah, blah, blah. But if it's true, that's sure a hell of a coincidence. Now, John has never been charged in Jody's case, but as I mentioned earlier, he's also never been officially cleared. He moved to Arizona not long after Jody vanished, and he's always said he has no idea what could have happened to her. She was declared legally dead in 2001, but without finding her body, there's no way to say for sure that she's not alive. I told you there's another recent connection to her case and that of a girl who was taken 16 years before Jody disappeared. Now, It's a long shot, but it's pretty strange. In 1979, two hours away from Mason City, an 18-year-old high school senior named Michelle Martinko was kidnapped from the parking lot of Cedar Rapids' Westdale Mall while she was unlocking her car door. She fought her attacker, and in the struggle, she was stabbed more than 30 times. It was a dark, chilly December night, and no one was around to help her or identify the guy who did it, and he left very few clues behind. When police found imprints from plastic gloves on her car, they realized they weren't dealing with a spur-of-the-moment attack. Whoever killed her had planned to take her and leave no trace, and he almost didn't. He must not have expected Michelle to fight back as hard as she did because she managed to draw some blood from him too. It was found on the gear shift and on the black dress she was wearing that night. But back then, you know, DNA wasn't the case closer it is today. So just like in Jody's disappearance, hundreds of people were questioned, dozens of leads were followed, but everything led to a dead end. The case went cold for 36 years, but detectives never let it drop completely. In fact, one investigator picked the case up from his father after he retired from the force. And in 2005, this second generation of investigators made some headway with the blood evidence. They found out it was from a male, which I know that it's like big deal. That's not much of a lead, but it was something. And in a case that cold, something is everything. And they pushed it as far as they could. They compared the DNA to the people they'd questioned back in 79 with no match. They ran it through CODIS, you know, the national database of offenders, but no dice. So whoever killed her was a stranger to her, and he hadn't been caught for something else, at least not in the year since DNA was collected and cataloged. But then in 2018, they got an idea. That's the year the Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo was finally caught, decades after terrorizing women in California. And it was genetic DNA that brought him down. So just in case you're not familiar with what I mean by genetic DNA, basically cops can now test a suspect's DNA against the DNA like that someone like you or me would send into a place like Ancestry.com. So if you're a criminal and someone in your family tree wants to know exactly how much you know Native American DNA they have... I'm 116th Creek, by the way, then you're going to get busted. And that's how the police in Michelle Martinko's case found her killer, a man named Jerry Burns. It seems Jerry's second cousin, once removed, had sent her DNA to a genealogy site to find out more about her family tree. 
And you can bet she wasn't counting on finding a murderer lurking among her distant relatives, but it's exactly what she got. Police traced her chart all the way back to her great-great-grandparents to figure out who the killer was. Their efforts led them to three brothers in Iowa, and from there, they were able to narrow it down to Jerry. The 67-year-old was arrested on December 19th, 2018, exactly 39 years after he took Michelle's life in that parking lot. I love a good arrest story, don't you? Now, here's where the link to Jody comes in. Before they arrested him, detectives questioned him at his work, but what he didn't know was that they were secretly recording the whole thing. Of course, right away, he played dumb, as one does when you're being questioned by the cops for a murder you know perfectly well you committed. So they had to remind him that Michelle was killed in 1979, and his response was bizarre and like completely unrelated to Michelle's murder. Unrelated to anything, really. What he said was, it was a big deal. I don't exactly remember what happened. Seen something about Jody Hoosentrup recently. What? Who brought up Jody? Not we didn't. You did, buddy. Weird. And then later, after they took him away in cuffs, his search history showed an obsession with porn and murders of blondes. Who hurt you? That is so disturbing. And Michelle and Jody, they do look similar, and they were both attacked at their cars. But Michelle was killed on the scene, and Jody has never been found. So was that just a nervous statement from a man who knew he was on his way to prison? Or could Jerry Burns have had something to do with Jody's abduction? That's just one more question to add to the pile. We can only hope and pray that something gives, and Jody's fate is finally revealed. Thank you so much for spending your time with me here today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, I hope you'll take a minute to subscribe and give this podcast a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out. Until next time, take care. It's dangerous out there.